the second round of matchups for the PFL 2023 regular season have all been posted on the MMA Fight Archive, ready for you to be studying them and breaking them down as well. The MMA Fight Archive is the largest collection of direct fight links to past fights from fighters from some of the top organizations from all over the world. You see all the promotions listed around me on this graphic, the majority of them of which have events going down in June in a very busy schedule upcoming for the MMA world. So if you want direct links and to save a bunch of time in terms of trying to find all the tape and footage and past fights of these fighters, I got all that for you on the MMA Fighter Archive. Approaching over 1,400 fighter profiles currently on there. We're going to reach 1,500, probably even closer to 1,700 by the end of June considering all the events that are about to go down. Make sure you guys take full advantage of it. Super cheap, $9.99 a month. It saves you a bunch of time. And I promise if you break down your own fights, do the predicting and like to do all the research all yourself, the MMA Fight Archive is there for you. There's a reason we already have over 30 members within the first month of this damn thing launching. Appreciate everybody that's checked it out thus far. Appreciate everybody that's going to be signing up for it. And also, if you don't want to chip out and any, you know, the $9.99 right off the bat, there is a seven-day free trial for you to give it a spin without having to shell out any money yet. And if that, you know, that should be what sells you on it uh, going through it for the first seven days, then you can sign up for it afterwards. Take a full advantage of that. Link in the description below. Check it out. Thank me later. All right, let's get right into the podcast. Welcome to another episode of the MMA Lockcast. I'm your host, Manpreet, a.k.a. MMA Lock of the Night, and your boy on social media at MMALOTN. This week, we're going over UFC 289, which is headlined by a women's bantamweight title fight between Amanda Nunes and Irene Aldana. In the co-main event, we have a high-stakes, super-high entertainment value fight in the lightweight division between Charles Dobronx, Oliveira, and Benio Dariush. And we got a ton of great Canadian talent sprinkled out throughout the card since this fight is actually taking place in vancouver canada so shout out to the great white north for finally getting an event since the whole covid era i'm um, still waiting for one on this side of the canadian scene the east coast hopefully for something in toronto or in the montreal area but we'll take a canadian event no matter where we can get it I have that pay-per-view glow because there's always something about pay-per-view fight week that just makes everything a little bit special. But before we get into the breakdowns, I quickly want to go over the lock of the night predictions from last week, and it was pretty damn good. Both lock of the night plays hit for the UFC. We had Tim Elliott go out there and do the damn thing against Victor Altamoreno. And then also for uh, Cage Warriors, we had the under one and a half in the Teddy Stringer fight. Very chalky, but I knew that was going to come through without a doubt. But we did fantastic in terms of predictions on that card as well as the dog of the night prediction for that. James Settle came through with relative ease as well. Dog of the Night for the UFC did not go so well, and Muin Gafferov just who could not get off a solid enough uh, effective striking to get the decision victory over John Castaneda, but showed off some decent things that so shows that he could potentially be a very entertaining addition to the UFC's bantamweight division. In terms of overall predictions for the UFC, though, we, we kind of shit that bed in terms of my best predictions. Not probably the worst event I had in terms of uh, just straight up predictions, but in terms of the spots that I actually shot on in terms of bets and all that we ended up uh, up on the night specifically with tim elliott being the majority of our stake that night and that's the that's the goal get the lock of the night predictions correct cash in on that and the rest of it should settle itself out uh 
a reminder that there is pfl this week as well they got three straight weeks of events here and the only place you'll be able to get those pfl breakdowns are gonna be on the patreon link in the description below i only do video predictions for the ufc contender series and bellator contender series i believe starts in august and bellator very sporadic with their events but in terms of just saving myself a little bit of time being able to keep up to date with the fight archive and being able to keep up to up to date with all the patreon uh information and, and stuff that i put out there I don't do any video breakdowns for PFL. So if you want breakdowns for breakdowns for those, link in the description below. I promise you will not be disappointed as PFL has been pretty damn good to us throughout the throughout the first three events, including the fourth event, which is their uh, PFL Euro Series, which I believe their second event is coming up in July as well. So keep your eyes peeled for that. But again, make sure you check out the Patreon. All the breakdowns usually are on there first before the public gets a hold of them. Uh, and not to mention Lock of the Night Prediction, Dog of the Night Prediction, and a bunch of other fun parlays for you guys to check out appreciate all the support you guys are the freaking awesome and best people for so supporting your boy through there as well also lastly shout out to godzilla wins which is a platform that i release written content for on a weekly basis on wednesdays we drop the uh main event uh written prediction down there and then on thursdays we drop the three best money line spots as well for every single ufc event as soon as they're posted i update the description below so that you guys can just click them there and head on over there and check it out all right, that's a wrap on all the plugs. Let's get right into the breakdowns. Kicking things off in the women's strawweight division, we got 14-7 and Diana Belbita going up against 13-6 and Maria Oliveira. Starting off on the Deanna Belbita side, she's coming off a loss to Gloria De Paula last time around, but she's been out of the cage for over 16 months at this point in time. She was scheduled to fight Loma Lukbunmi back in September, but was unfortunately forced to pull out of that contest due to an injury. And now here she returns in her home country, or at least adopted home country now, of uh, Canada, specifically in Vancouver. She is originally a Romanian fighter who changed up her camp, moving down to Stony Creek, aka Hamilton, Ontario, to train out of the famed House of Champions uh, gym under uh, one of the top coaches that we have in the country in Crew Alin. Now, Deanna Balbita comes from a striking background, and you can see that on full display when she goes out there and throws down. She has great aggression, forward movement, and straight shots down the pipe. She does a really good job in terms of working the body of her opponent and really putting the damage on them. She's improving the defensive grappling parts of her game, which seems to be the downfall of some of her losses that she's taken. She is currently 1-3 and three in her UFC career thus far, but I believe that she is becoming a better fighter and even showcased some good things in that loss to Gloria De Paula. If she can show a little bit more urgency in terms of working out of bad positions, specifically getting tied up against the cage, she should be able to start getting some victories under her belt and start picking up some momentum. On the flip side, her opponent Maria Oliveira is coming off of a loss to Vanessa Demopoulos back in November in a fight where she got dropped multiple times and actually gave up a lot of control time to Vanessa Demopoulos. Now, uh, Oliveira is an aggressive striker in her own right, but she does a great job in terms of moving laterally, staying on the outside of her opponent's range, and then crashing the pocket with a couple big strikes when she needs to just to get off some offense. That's how she was able to pull off the upset as nearly a 2-1 to underdog to Gloria De Paula back in June of last year, but she needs to add a couple more wrinkles to her game if she hopes to make it to further levels inside the UFC. She's trained out of the PRV Teachim, which is famed from uh, Jessica Andrade, who's uh, a big name from out of there, as well as Carol Hosa. 
So I'm curious to see if uh, Spider-Girl can go out there and continue adding to her skill set, especially considering that she's only 26 years old. This is sure to be a very close fight with women or both women having solid success in the striking round, but I'm going to have to lean with the Canadian or Romanian Canadian here in Diana Belbita. I feel like her aggressive striking style will be able to land more effective strikes on Oliveira, which could even translate to some knockdowns here, just as she's been able to do in the past, and just as Maria Oliveira was on the receiving end in the last fight against Vanessa Demopoulos. Now she's going up against a better striker who should be able to cut off the cage, land better strikes whenever Oliveira is trying to move laterally here and then as long as she can stay out of bad positions in terms of getting locked up against the cage or from getting taken down improvements that we've been seeing from her in terms of a takedown defense is just getting out of those bad positions up against the cage if she can minimize that she'll be able to land the more effective strikes dig to the body start slowing Maria Oliveira down and then winning this fight by decision it also helps that she'll have the home field advantage here and hopefully the crowd pops a little bit more whenever she lands some significant strikes and hopefully that plays into this decision give me the Diana Belbita by decision. Moving over to the men's flyweight division, we got 20 and 5 David Dvorak welcoming 9 and 1 Steven Ursig to the UFC. Starting off on the David Dvorak side, he's riding a two-fight losing streak right now at the hands of Matthias Nikolaou and Manel Cap, the latter of which taking place in December of this past year. Dvorak was originally scheduled to fight Matt Schnell this June, but Schnell was forced to pull out of that fight, and Steve Ursig gets the call up here. Now David Dvorak tries to wipe away another short notice UFC debutante, exactly what he did to Juan Camilo Ronderos back in May of 2021. Dvorak is a solid all-round fighter with good striking, good combinations, and an underrated grappling game. Unfortunately, his last two fights have shown that he's likely not going to be able to surpass a certain level in the UFC, but he is likely a guy that will hover that top 10 to 15 range of the flyweight division. He's strong, he has great leg kicks as well, especially if he's able to implement them nice and early in his fights, but he's a great all-around fighter. You know, he can go out there and implement a grapple-heavy game if he needs to, or he can just go out there and try to strike with his opponents looking to knock them out. I'm still a big fan of his, but we know that he's likely never going to uh, crack that top five of the division, but he's a good br uh, litmus test for a lot of fighters coming into the UFC or looking to break into the top 10 he's looking to actually turn away a fighter that's coming in on short notice here and Steve Ursig who is the eternal MMA flyweight champion who holds wins over guys like Shannon Ross and Sungguk Choi who is actually on the current season of the road to UFC. Steve Ursig is riding a eight fight winning streak uh, he only has one loss through his 10 fights and he's finished six of his eight victories. He's very aggressive. Uh, he's a black belt in BJJ as of early 2022 and actually holds, I believe, a, a Muay Thai or kickboxing national championship down there in Australia. He's a solid all-around fighter, but the question remains is can he transfer that type of skill level to the UFC considering some of the level of competition he's been fighting on the regional scene over there in Australia. He looks to have the goods and I was kind of surprised that he wasn't the one getting the call up to the contender series back in 2022 when Shannon Ross actually got the, the shot, especially considering that Ersig has a win over Ross. But I was told that Ersig was having some visa issues and now that he's fighting in in Canada, I don't know if his issues down in uh, the U.S. have been sorted or not, but at least he's getting the call up to the UFC, something that a lot of people believe he deserved for a while now, and I can't wait to see him go out there and showcase his talents on this level. 
I'm going to start off by saying Ersig is no slouch. Let's not overlook the kid here. He has a very stellar 9-1 record for a reason. He's very good pretty much everywhere, but I just need to know if he can handle the UFC level at this point. So I wouldn't be willing to take the heavy chalk on David Dvorak here. If anything, maybe a little bit of a sprinkle on the Ersig side, but I feel like that Dvorak is going to be a little bit too strong in the grappling situations, and I think he'll be able to land with a little bit more emphasis in terms of his striking. Add in his kicking game, I think he can slow down Ersig and you know, put together a very good body of work for the judges to see it in his favor. But I think the odds are just a little bit too wide here. As of me recording this, he's roughly around minus 285. That line might start to drop as we get Ursic Love start to come in throughout the week. The only time I'd maybe consider a spot on Dvorak is if he somehow gets down to the minus 150, minus 160 range. Otherwise, I'm good with just a prediction on Dvorak for this fight to go over two and a half rounds and for Dvorak to win by decision. Moving up to the featherweight division, we got 13-5-1 Kyle Nelson going up against 8-0-1 Blake Builder. Starting off on the Kyle Nelson side, it seemed like he saved his job last time around by going to a draw with the Korean superboy Ho Choi. That was due to an inadvertent headbutt in the third round from Duho Choi, which got a point taken away from him. And two judges actually scored the second round for Kyle Nelson, which ended up making that fight a majority draw. That is on the back end of two straight losses to the likes of Billy Q and Jay Herbert, fights in which Kyle Nelson has been looking to change up his fighting approach. What originally got him to the dance was his big striking power and knockout power, which allowed him to knock out a, a ton of opponents en route to getting that short notice call up to the UFC back in December of 2018. However, after coming up short against uh, Diego Ferreira, Matt Sales, and then eventually getting his hand raised after a 96-second knockout over Polo Reyes, uh, we saw Kyle Nelson try to change up his game plan to try to uh, increase, the, increase the longevity of his career in the UFC, but it's clear that his gas tank and his body is just not built for a grapple-heavy approach. When you just try to change up your style so uh, quickly in uh, your career, it's it's clear that your body's just not used to that. His body's used to going out there, stuffing takedowns, and putting power on his opponents with the striking. But it's clear that his level of striking is just not UFC level at this point. Nor is his ability to improve his grappling game. He's going to have to extremely overhaul things if he wants to have success in that realm. But that's probably something he's not going to be able to implement in this fight against Blake Builder. Blake Builder is coming in uh, as an undefeated fighter. He won his UFC debut back in February with a uh, unanimous decision victory over Shane Young. That was a fight where he utilized his grappling in the first round and then a lot of good movement and striking in the second and third rounds to get his hand raised via decision. That actually was on the back end of his contender series winning effort as a plus 180 underdog to Canadian Alex Morgan, where he ended up dropping him and then finishing him with a rear naked choke three minutes into the first round of their fight. Blake Builder is the former CFFC featherweight champion and before he got an opportunity to uh, actually sorry he did defend it once uh, before he had the opportunity to defend it twice he got called up to the contender series and he was able to punch his ticket to the UFC with that emphatic performance. He's a great all-around fighter, but I believe he does his best work when he's able to get his opponents to the ground. His striking still needs a lot of improvement, but the fact that he added a lot of movement to his game made it very hard for Shane Young to get a beat on him to get his own offense off. If Builder hopes to continue his success at this level, utilizing that type of footwork and lateral movement and then chaining wrestling behind it or even a combination or two will allow him to extend his UFC career, and I think he could do that with another win this weekend over Kyle Nelson. 
I feel like this is the perfect fight for Blake Builder to go out there and get another UFC win. And it will come at the expense of a fellow Canadian. But I think Kyle Nelson really only has a puncher's stance to win this fight. I don't. I highly doubt he's going to try to go out there and implement a grapple-heavy game just as he has in the past because Builder is clearly the better grappler here. So if Kyle Nelson can try to exploit his striking advantage and the power that he has, he might be able to find some success. However, I love the movement, lateral movement, and just overall work we've been seeing from Builder throughout his, the progression of his career. And I think that's going to cause Nelson some trouble in terms of landing a big shot. I think he might end up overextending on a shot here in terms of his striking. That will allow Builder to dip, uh, change levels, get below that big strike, get this fight to the ground, and do good enough damage from on top, eventually finding a late finish here. So uh, I like Builder. I think he has a solid trajectory that he's on right now and i think stylistically speaking this is a horrible matchup for kyle nelson give me blake builder uh probably by third round submission moving down a division and going to the bantamweights we got nine and two amen zahabi going up against 24 and nine orichi lang Starting off on the Canadian side here. And Eamon Zahabi, he's coming off two straight victories over Draco Rodriguez and Ricky Tercios, which was last year in July. Eamon Zahabi in that fight waded through the 11% striking accuracy of Ricky Tercios, who threw over 230 significant strikes that night. Again, only landing 11% of them. And he landed over 50% of his own offense there. And Zahabi was able to get his hand raised by being more efficient with his damage and his striking. He comes originally from a striking background, but he has some sneaky submissions up his sleeve if he can get fights to the ground. But it's very uh, discouraging to see the lack of activity throughout his UFC career. He got signed to the UFC at the beginning of 2017 and has only competed five times since then. He's put together a 3-2 record with losses to Ricardo Hamos and Vince Morales. He actually took off almost two years between the Morales and Draco Rodriguez fight, um, but... Now he finds himself in his third fight during this COVID era. He's a striker with a decent power as he showcased in the Draco Rodriguez fight. And obviously you got to believe that he has a lot of good fight IQ considering he's the younger brother of famed Canadian head coach Faraz Sahabi. Eamon Sahabi though is 35 years old and you got to wonder how much time he has left in his, uh, in his career. But you got to wonder that he probably doesn't think that he has a, a title run in him, especially being that old in this weight class. <clears throat> he has good striking uh, prowess, good technical striking specifically, and he throws in combinations and is very patient in terms of letting his offense go. Again, very sneaky submission game as well, but we'll see if he even looks to take fights to the ground moving forward. And is, uh, uh, or opposite of him this weekend, is Arichi Lang, who's on a two-fight winning streak of his own, specifically since moving up a division here to bantamweight. He finished Cameron Ellis back in April of 2022, and then picked up a decision victory over Jay Perron back in August. He spent a couple months over there at Fight Ready, and then was forced to move back to China, but has been spending the last two or so weeks in Arizona at Fight Ready, getting ready for this fight, and he will have the fame strike coach from Fright Ready, Mr. Eddie Cha, in his corner. He's built a very good relationship with fellow, uh, I believe, bantamweight or featherweight fighter, Haile Alatang, who uh, has a great wrestling background. So I believe that's the weakness in Orichi Lang's game. And if he can continue to improve the grappling or defensive grappling aspects of his game, he will be more than happy to go out there and continue to strike with his opponents, putting his big power and aggressive striking style to use. 
the Mongolian murderer nickname is apt for a fighter like this, especially with the way that he fights. Even in losses like he had against Jeff Molina and Cody Durden, he is putting it all out there and really putting the pressure on his opponents. It seemed like the technical striking advantage of Jeff Molina was too much, as well as the grappling advantage of Cody Durden for Orichi Lang. But in the last couple of fights, we have been seeing grappling advantage or improvements from him. So that gives me hope that this 29-year-old uh, fighter who has, you know, 30, what is that, 33 fights under his belt is still making improvements at this point in his career. And I think he still has a bright future ahead of him if he can put everything together. This should be a fun striking battle for as long as it lasts. And, you know, I I do think it goes the full 15 minutes, but there could be some finishing opportunities for both guys here concerning how much I expect this to play out in the striking room. If anything, I think Zahabi might look to take this to the ground and try to utilize his jiu-jitsu. However, I think we are seeing solid defensive grappling improvements uh, from Orichi Lang, especially since moving up to this bantamweight division, that I think he'll be able to keep this in the striking room and that he'll likely be able to uh, come out on top given his output advantage his volume advantage and just landing more significant strikes on Zahabi Zahabi's a little bit too timid at times in terms of throwing his offense and it obviously paid off for him against Ricky Tercios however I don't think that Harichi Lang is only going to land 11% of his significant strikes as he is a little bit more methodical and a little bit more accurate with the striking than Ricky Tercios was last time around so give me Harichi Lang here and I think he wins this fight by decision Next, we move to the women's flyweight division where we have 11-4 Miranda Maverick going up against 8-2 Jasmine Jazdu Vicious. Starting off on the Miranda Maverick side, she's coming off two straight wins now over Sabina Mazo, who she finished in the second round with a rear naked choke, and most recently in November, defeating Shanna Young once again via decision. Miranda Maverick is a fighter that continues to show improvements at her young age of 25 years old. Training under the tutelage of the Elevation Fight Team, you know that she has a bright future still ahead of her, but you gotta wonder when her physical advantages will start to catch up with the, or sorry, at least her, uh, her skill level will catch up to the physical advantages she normally brings to the table. We saw her lose two straight fights to Macy Barber and Aaron Blanchfield in 2021. Although the former in that in those two fights, we know that it was a pretty bad decision that she ended up losing. But the Aaron Blanchfield fight was one that we saw her get taken down seven times and controlled for over 12 minutes of a 15-minute fight. It seems as though that she does have issues or has even shown issues in the past, even before coming to the UFC against fighters that try to put on a grapple-heavy approach. If opponents just look to straight up strike with her, they'll more than likely end up coming on the losing end because of Maverick's ability to get fights to the ground and utilize her strength from that top position. She's a solid jiu-jitsu player as well who showcases great strength when she's able to get her opponents to the mat, but I still have question marks about her technical abilities in terms of getting fights to the mat and even her striking as well, which seems to need some work at this point. However, she is still a very bright prospect that we need to keep our eyes on. And I'm not, you know, writing her off by any means, but I think we need to kind of tone down the over-exaggeration of hype that we seem to have on her time and time again. On the flip side for Jasmine Jazz Duvicius, who comes in with an 8-2 record, she bounced back successfully after her first UFC loss at the hands of Natalia Silva last year. She uh, uh, defeated Gabriela Fernandez back in February by decision. That was a fight where she went back to her wrestling roots and was able to get the fight to the ground effectively and do damage from on top, whether it was getting the crucifix position and landing big elbows from on top or even consistently passing that guard and getting good enough damage from on top that the referee was not forced to step in to stand up the fight at all. 
Jasmine, that is her game. You know, she comes out of a, a team called Niagara Top Team, which is mainly known for its wrestling. And I get it. Canada is not really known for wrestling, but there are specific sects within the country that are very good at that. And Niagara Top Team is showcasing why a lot of their top prospects can go out there and just grind their opponents through the mat. Jazz Davisius is one of the first coming out of that camp that is making noise on the UFC scene. And I know there's going to be a ton of other guys on the come up. They just need a little bit more experience and a little bit more experience exposure and they'll be able to make that change it seemed as though in this fight against Gabriela Fernandez Fernandez tried to do what Natalia Silva did a lot of uh, lateral movements staying on the outside and trying to pick apart Jazz Davisius but Jazz Davisius did a great thing in terms of cutting off the cage landing strikes of her own rather than just trying to go for desperation takedowns and that allowed the takedowns to come effortlessly behind that it was a great improvement and adjustment that she made and something that she learned harshly from the Natalia Silva fight and I look forward to seeing how she's able to implement that moving forward so that she can use her advantages to the best of her abilities and still come out on the winning end this is really a tough one because you know I, i'm big on maverick i i think she has a tremendous amount of uh a uh, potential and I think she has a very bright future but stylistically speaking this is one of the harder matchups that she has over her last several fights the opponents that she's beating without too much issue are the ones that she can just go out there outstrike or even utilize her grappling and just take them to the ground the ones she's losing to are the ones that she's giving up takedowns to and really can't do much when they get her to the ground obviously Aaron Blanchfield far superior than Jasmine Jazdovicius don't get me wrong but Jazdovicius is one of the better grapplers that the or the uh, the flyaway division has to showcase she, like I said, she trains out of the, one of the better wrestling teams that we have in Canada, and I think she can implement her size advantage, which is going to have a large size advantage in this matchup, and she can use that strength against Maverick here to get her to the ground and do some good damage from on top. My only concern is Maverick's jiu-jitsu off of her back or her ability to possibly reverse positions here, but it's going to be on Jazz Davisius to drain her gas tank, keep that forward pressure on her, and just keep that grappling pressure on her to potentially eke this fight out. You know, I think it's much closer than the odds actually in indicate here and i get it my canada is probably showing here but i feel like we've seen these upsets happen in women's mma fights where the big favorite is assumed to go in there and just do the damn thing just as jazz davisius was supposed to do against natalia silva but given the stylistic matchup it could actually prove different for uh, miranda maverick here so give me jazz davisius i think she wins this fight by decision low confidence again this is a, I believe it's a tighter fight than the odds indicate, which is why I'm willing to take a shot on uh, Jazz Davisius here. Um, but, you know, I, I think she has the chops to go out there and pull off the, the upset. So give me Jazz Davisius by decision. Headlining the prelim portion of the card, we got a middleweight bout between Nasserdine Imavov, who comes in with a 12-4 record, going up against 30-10 Chris Action Man Curtis. Starting off on the Frenchman's side here in Imovov. He's coming off a loss in his first UFC main event slot back in December against, or sorry, back in January against short notice replacement Sean Strickland. I believe Calvin Gaslam had to pull out of that fight on fight week and Sean Strickland, who was fresh off his own main event matchup as the, at the last event of 2022, was more than happy to step in after he felt he got robbed against Jared Cannonier and he was able to flip the script and pick up his own decision victory over Imovov. Strickland showcased forward pressure, great cardio, and the ability to just wane through that pressure, or sorry, that uh, sniping style of Imovov and get off his own offense. And he even landed a couple takedowns to boot as well. 
Imovov is a solid striker. His nickname, the Russian Sniper, is apt for him, especially considering how he likes to strike. He stays on the outside, utilizes his kicks up the middle, and his long straight shots down the pipe to keep his opponents at distance. He's normally at a decent height advantage, standing at six foot three for this middleweight division, and he's been able to use it against guys like Joaquin Buckley, Edmund Shabazian, and even Ian Heinish, finishing the former two in those out of those three opponents. Now he holds a uh, what is that? A four and two record since entering the UFC back in 2020, and I believe he has a solid matchup for him uh, this weekend against a name opponent and actually the training partner of his last opponent, Sean Strickland. Chris Curtis comes into this matchup on a two and two run over his last four fights, most recently dropping a de- unanimous decision to Kelvin Gaslam back in April at UFC 287. That was a back and forth fight, which I believe Kelvin Gastelum ended up winning the first two rounds, if I'm not mistaken, and then ended up dropping the third there to Curtis. Again, back and forth fight. Gastelum had some moments. Chris Curtis had some moments. But we know what Chris is good at. He likes to go in there, throw down in the pocket with his opponent, and try to find that knockout. Joaquin Buckley was doing a decent enough job in the first six or seven minutes of that fight before he got dragged into a pocket exchange with Curtis and ended up paying for it and getting dropped and finished. Curtis is normally a 170 pounder, but since joining the UFC back in 2021, he managed to find success with getting three straight victories at middleweight and seemingly is now comfortable with fighting at 185 pounds, even though he'll likely be at a size disadvantage throughout his career. I believe he's going to have to take a couple straight losses in the UFC at this weight class to realize that, you know what, I probably need to go down to welterweight if I hope to be successful at this level. And I believe this weekend will be another reminder for him that maybe his size is just, you know, going to be the big disadvantage that he'll uh, not be able to overcome as he continues to take steps up this middleweight ladder. This could be a a fun, fun fight for sure. Obviously, you got Imovov's distance striking compared to the pocket exchanges and big, uh, you know, combination striking style of Chris Curtis. But I feel like this is a fight that Imovov should be able to keep at distance, keep Curtis on the end of his punches and win this fight by decision. But there are inevitably going to be spots where Curtis can suck Imovov into a pocket exchange and he might be able to get off enough damage in those spots that he could get the judge's favor or even find a knockout in those spots. So I have low confidence on the Imovov side here but I feel as though he is just more equipped to win this stylistic matchup not to mention the size disadvantage that Chris Curtis will be at the in this fight I believe it's a five inch five inch height advantage and I believe their reach is the same at 75 inches but I think it's really the kicking game of Imovov that's going to frustrate Chris Curtis here keep him on the outside and keep him away from really getting off his own effective offense give me the the Russian Frenchman uh, Nasrud Imovov to win this fight by decision Kicking off the main card in the middleweight division, we got 15-6 Marc-Andre Barrio going up against 15-7 Eric Anders. Marc-Andre Barrio has split his last four fights as he's gone 2-2, two two, losing a fight to Chidi Anjikwani, picking up a win over Jordan Wright, losing a fight to Anthony Hernandez, and then most recently picking up a, a patented win over Julian Marquez. And what I mean by that is it was a classic Barrio performance. He fights similar to, similarly to Anthony Hernandez, who was his former foe as well, but slightly differently in the fact that Hernandez goes out there and tries to grapple his opponents into the mat, utilize high cardio, high activity, and high grappling to wear out his opponents so that he can finish them late, which is what he did to Andre Barrio. And then on the flip side for Marc-Andre, he uses his 
pressure footwork style, combination striking, and just pushing the pace by staying in his opponent's face and just wearing them out that way. Even though he ended up losing that first round to Julian Marquez, he made Marquez work a lot in that matchup. And it showcased that if Barrio's durability can hold up, he is a very difficult opponent to get out of there and deal with and even try to survive a full 15 minutes with. I think my claim to fame in terms of calling round three props was due to the Abu Azaitar fight for Barrio, who managed to work him into the mat and then eventually get a TKO with four seconds left on the clock, as I knew that he would have a significant cardio advantage in that fight. Not only that fight, but other fights against power punches have showcased that Barrio does have a decent enough durability, so that doesn't make me question him too much going up against guys like Julian Mar- uh, Marquez or even other power punchers that he might face moving forward. I remember seeing him on the amateur scene back in uh, Montreal way back in the day and I believe that moving down to South Florida was a great move for him especially with the type of training and training partners he's getting over there at Killcliffe FC. I expect to see Marc-Andre really start to tie things together now and get a streak going if he can continue showcasing the improvements that he's making down there at Killcliffe FC. He's a very solid all-around fighter, but it's really his ability to weaponize his cardio and that forward pressure that breaks his opponent that sees him shine. On the flip side for Eric Anders, he's had a rough go of things over the last couple of fights. He is also 2-2, two two, but he had a two-fight losing streak sprinkled in there. He got armbarred by Andre Munez back in December of 2021, lost a controversial decision last year to Jun-Yung Park. It was a close fight, I should call it that, but then managed to get his... Uh, dub back here against Kyle Dawkins back in December where he just absolutely obliterated him from jump he was a big underdog in that matchup but Dawkins showcased that it's very difficult for him to take damage anymore especially since he got knocked out by Roman Delize a couple months prior uh, Eric Anders decent punching power he hadn't really shown it much you know over the last couple years up until that Kyle Dawkins fight he more so has been showing that he can go out there and just utilize his physical advantages over his opponents and defeat them that way he needs to continue showcasing skills and improvements in the rest of his skills if he hopes to be successful at this level. He's 36 years old now, or at least turned 36 back in April, and I believe the work that he's been doing with Fight Ready has him in tip-top shape. I believe he made that move at the in, in 2020 because he looked damn good against Darren Stewart in their se- first fight, and then in the second fight, he just chose to opt for a, a bunch of control time up against the cage to grind that fight out and get that victory. Again, Physical advantages are great to beat the lower end of the uh, of the UFC roster, but as you continue to take steps up in in uh, competition and rankings, you're going to have to bring in the talent side of it as well. I think this is a great fight for Marc Andre Barrio. You know, uh, going back to watching Eric Andrews' fight with uh, fellow Canadian and f- the late great Elias Theodoru, uh, I think uh, if we see Barrio take sex of that game plan or even just take sex of the game plan where we've seen uh, Anders get outworked, that's how Barrio wins this fight. Just do the patented Barrio thing. As long as his durability holds up here, I just don't see how Eric Anders gets his hand raised. Barrio is going to be the more uh, effective uh, striker here, especially down the stretch. He's going to be more active, throw more output, and just bring more to the table than just pushing somebody up against the cage. 
Of course, Anders could potentially land a big bomb and put Berrio down, but I think Berrio's durability issues are being a little bit over-exaggerated. Of course, it's going to happen once in a while in a fighter's career, but I think that Barrio will show off a good enough durability, good enough pressure game, keeping Anders on the back foot, which won't allow him to produce enough power to find that knockout shot against Barrio. So give me Barrio, similar to what he did against Julian Marquez, maybe possible late finish for Barrio here. At worst, I think he wins this fight by decision. If you can get one of those spots that gives you round three slash decision, I'd take that shot as well. Give me Barrio, and I feel pretty good about it as well. Moving over to the featherweight division, we got 16-6 and six, Dan Ige going up against 17-7 and seven, Nate Landwehr. Starting off on the Dan Ige side, he snapped a three-fight losing streak by knocking out Damon Jackson back in January. That was a beautiful fight that showcased that Dan Ige still has it. I know a lot of people were counting him out going into that Damon Jackson fight, but you got to give him the benefit of the doubt considering that his three-fight losing streak came against the Korean Zombie, Josh Emmett, and Movzer Ivluayev, all guys who have either fought for the title or are primed to eventually fight for the title, especially Movzer Ivluayev. Dan Ige is a BJJ black belt, but he utilizes tight boxing combinations and good defensive striking to put the pressure on his opponents and utilize his power and deceiving power, I should say, to really hurt his opponents in the pocket or at least damage them enough to make it look good enough for the judges and get his hand raised he has an underrated grappling game but is a bjj black belt and you see that on full display when he's able to get fights to the ground and do good enough damage from that top pressure i don't know if he'll ever be a guy that cracks that top five or even tries to get it close to a title shot even though he's only 31 years old and i think he's shown his ceiling especially during that three fight losing streak he's on but he is a very tough test for anybody looking to break into that top 10 and that's exactly what he's going to be getting this weekend and a guy in nate landwehr who's trying to burst that top 10 ranking as well skipping over to the nate landwehr side he's on a three fight winning streak Two of those being big uh, upset victories coming in as near 2-1 to one underdogs in both fights against Ludovic Klein and David Onama. He started off his UFC career 1-2, and two, getting knocked out brutally in both of his losses. And he had a lot of hype coming into the UFC, but that quickly fizzled out during that 1-2 and two run that started his UFC career. But with three straight victories now and a budding personality that a lot of people are enjoying, Nate Landwehr is on the cusp of bursting into being a star in the UFC if he can continue to get his hand raised. But I still question his level of durability at this level, especially against guys who are going to be able to hit him and hit him cleanly in the pocket, counter him effectively, especially with some of the wild strikes that he likes to bring to the table. He has a good grappling background as well and has pulled off some sneaky chokes as we've seen over the last couple fights. But I still question his just wildness and, you know, uh, just his his aggressiveness is a little bit too uh, sporadic and too wild for my liking to be competing against the top of the division. But he's a treat to watch. He is a fan favorite for sure. And I know the fan in me is definitely cheering for him to get his uh, hand raised this weekend. Let's just see if he can continue to keep the train rolling through Vancouver, uh, British Columbia. I think that this is a step up for Nate Landwehr in the UFC scene that he's just not fully equipped for. Dan Ige is a guy that can be beaten, don't get me wrong, but I think his slick strike, uh, slick and tight boxing style is going to be a little bit too tough for Landwehr to get a beat on. I think Landwehr is going to continuously crash the pocket here, try to get off some big offense, but that's going to open up opportunities for Ige to counter effectively, land some big shots, and possibly even end Landwehr's night with the big knockout. I don't think the odds should be super wide in this fight, don't get me wrong, but, uh, you know, Landwehr, 
is a fun fighter. The fan of me is going to be hoping he pulls off the victory here, but I think he's going to struggle with a more well-rounded Dan Ige. But if he can put together output, stay away from the big punching power of Ige, maybe even land some takedowns and make it look good for the judges, Lanwer is live in this fight. But I still lean on the veteran Dan Ige. I think he has a better overall game. I think he lands a better significant strikes. And I think he eventually finds a knockout in this fight. Give me Dan Ige by knockout round two i don't know i don't know what round but i think by uh by knockout moving up to the welterweight division we have proper mike malott coming in with a nine one and one record going up against nine and three adam fugit starting off on the mike malott side he's riding a solid winning streak right now since receiving his first loss to hakeem duwadu way back in 2014 he, after that fight, had a lot of uh, difficulties in terms of building up the uh, courage and motivation to step inside the cage, which is when he actually saw himself move down from Canada to Sacramento to start training with the Team Alpha Male guys and really started to find himself in a coaching position with the team there. From that span of like 2017 through 2020, you can really see him as a prominent cornerman whenever the Team Alpha Male guys went out there to compete. However, through that time, he found that fire once again and put together a one, two, three, and one streak, including his contender series winning performance, which was only a 39 second guillotine choke over Shimon Smotritsky. And that earned him his contract to the UFC and the fire to go out there and achieve the potential that a lot of people expected from him way back in 2014. I remember uh, being a part of the planning committee, or at least being the the logistics manager for SCC2, which was the night that he fought Alan Wilson. We couldn't find anybody to fight him. On Tapology. there's only one guy listed that was canceled in terms of fighting him. But trust me, there were so many guys out there that turned down to fight Mike Malop because of how highly touted of a prospect he was. But he eventually ran into Hakeem Duwadu and then people were more than willing to end up fighting him. But now at the UFC level, nobody is going to be able to turn him down considering he's fighting at the highest level. He comes in with a very smooth and solid striking background coming from a Muay Thai base originally but has been improving his jiu-jitsu game throughout the years which showcases as he's been able to pull off a lot of submissions throughout his career as well. I'm surprised that he used to fight at 145 pounds way back in the day, given his frame standing at six foot one. But now he's fully filled out into a welterweight body, and I think that this is the best division for him to compete at. His opponent this weekend, Adam Fugit, like I said, comes in with a nine and three record, and currently has a one and one record through his first two UFC fights. I've been a little bit higher on him than most, especially since his short notice UFC debut against Michael Morales back in July, and he came up short in that fight, but he did actually win the first round on at least two judges' scorecards. It seemed like the short notice aspect of that fight did play into it as his gas tank started to run on empty, and he eventually got finished in that final round. He pulled off a big upset in his next bout against Yusaku Kenoshida, which took place back in February, and I think that you know kind of reminded people that Fugit is, you know, He's a solid fighter. You know, he came into the UFC with an 8-2 record. He is not somebody to just overlook. He has good pace, good wrestling, good striking, and some decent power as well. I think with the full training camp, he's a very tough cookie to beat, and or at least, you know, very difficult opponent to, to, to match up against. But I think he is definitely getting up there in age at 34 years old. Uh, he's probably right in his prime. But I just believe that there is a solid cap on his career at this point in time. Just somebody that not a lot of people should be overlooking. 
I feel I should be more confident on the Mike Malat side, just given what I know about him, given I, I know what kind of potential he has. And I feel like the public is still a little bit lower on him just because of like, you know, they don't know him the way that I used to know him in terms of how highly touted he was way back in the day. And it seems like he's really stringing things together right now. I feel as though he should win this fight, but Adam Fugit is another guy that the public is generally very low on. I feel like he could potentially uh, uh, find a big shot here to put Mike Malott down and get his own hand raised. So I'm not big on taking the heavy chalk here on Mike Malott, but what I would take the chalk on is the violence. Under two and a half, last time I checked, was like minus 230. I think that's fine. I think both guys have finishing upside here, but I'm going to lean with the Malott side here who eventually finds this takedown, finds a submission and wraps it up and takes it on home with him. But this is going to be a very violent fight, especially the way that these guys match up here. When Malat gets fights to the ground, he's very aggressive looking for finishes. And when both of these guys are on the feet, they go out there looking for finishes. I think it's going to be Mike Malat who ends up getting that hand raised. By, by finish, I'm going to call it submission. Give me Mike Malat. Oh boy, we got a high stakes lightweight matchup here in the co-main event. Between 33 and 9, former lightweight champion Charles Dobronx Oliveira going up against 22, 4 and 1, Benil Dariush. Starting off on the Charles Oliveira side, he is ha fresh off of losing his title actually back in October against Islam Mahachev, a fight that probably was not the best for him stylistically speaking. However, let's take a moment and just tip our caps to the revolutionary uh well not revolutionary but like the the evolution in charles dobronx uh, Oliveira's game since 2018 i believe uh the record that he had let me just quickly get the number here for you guys uh it was 19 and uh where is it where is it where is it where is it uh, sorry, yeah, through his first 19 fights with the promotion, he was 10-8 and won no contest. But after his loss to Paul Felder back in December of 2017, he went on an 11-fight winning streak, which saw him capture the lightweight title and defend it once before it eventually got stripped from him from missing weight against, uh, I believe it was Dustin Poirier. Uh, was it Dustin Poirier? There was one fight where he ended up getting it stripped. Oh yeah, it was the uh, the the Justin Gaethje fight that he got it stripped from him, but he still ended up winning that fight and then ended up challenging for the title once again against Islam Mahachev. Dobronx has made vast improvements in terms of his technical striking, uh, his wrestling is up there as well, and the ability to not quit on himself. He's you know shown in the past that if things aren't going his way early, he'll look for a way out and usually give up. But there were some fights where he faced adversity through that 11-fight winning streak. You know, the Michael Chandler fight, even the Dustin Poirier fight. But he managed to keep it together and still go out there and get his hand raised. Now he has another big test ahead of him this weekend. And Benio Darius is on, also on a big winning streak of his own. I believe he's on a 10-fight winning streak. Let me just confirm that number. Two, four, six, sorry, eight-fight winning streak. And he's been turning away all, uh, you know, all comers. And in emphatic fashion as well. You know, he came into his last fight against Matoush Gamrat the same night that Charles Oliveira lost his belt. He came in as nearly a plus two underdog against Gamrat and was able to go out there, stuff the grapple-heavy approach of Gamrat and beat him to the punch in the striking realm. But Neil came into the UFC as a BJJ black belt, but under the tutelage of Rafael Cordero over there at MMA Kings, has really rounded out his striking game and is really putting it to use, beating up most of his opponents and even finishing them with some big strikes on the feet. 
His defensive grappling is top-notch, never settling for a bad position, and he's always putting the pressure on his opponents, looking to either get them out of there or at least control them long enough to get his hand raised at the end of the fight by decision. He cannot be denied a title shot if he manages to defeat Charles Oliveira, especially if he does it in emphatic fashion. But I know for damn sure, considering the amount of fights that Charles Oliveira has been in and the amount of fights, amount of his fights that have gone to a decision, this fight has promised to be a barn burner. This is another fight that has violence written all over it. Unless it's one of those fights where either guy look to try to dominate each other in the grappling realm by holding them down, I just don't see that happening though. Both guys very rarely settle for position and if it's Charles Oliveira on his back, he's a guy that's likely given, him, given up on himself unless he's throwing up submissions off of his back. The under 2.5 is my favorite spot in this matchup. I believe it's going to be Benio Dariush eventually finding a big knockout here over Charles Del Bronx, whether it's a club and sub or just a club and dub, drum opportunity. But given that it's, what, 27 out of 31 UFC fights for Charles Oliveira that have finished inside the distance, yes, the under 2.5 at minus 165, give me some of that. I feel like we're going to see violence here, but I think it's going to be Benio Dariush getting his hand raised. Time for the main event of the evening, and it goes down in the women's bantamweight division. As the 22-5 Amanda Nunes looks to defend her bantamweight title once again against 14-6 Irene Aldana. Starting off on the Amanda Nunes side, she is coming off of getting her title back from Juliana Pena after unfortunately losing it back in December of 2021. I think this is a perfect example of what it looks like when a fighter goes in unmotivated and completely disrespecting her opponent and then losing and then changing the tide, taking the fight seriously and showcasing what it would have looked like if she took the fight seriously and that's exactly what happened in the second matchup. In the first fight, we saw Amanda Nunes go out there and show reckless abandon. She wasn't caring what Juliana Pena was throwing her way, really believing that she could go out there and just knock out Juliana Pena just as she's been able to do to previous opponents. But Pena was showcasing good durability that night, took on all the heat that Amanda Nunes brought on early, and then eventually took her to the mat and made her tap to a rear naked choke that wasn't really even that deep. And it, I believe it really came down to Nunes thinking that she can go out there and knock out Pena relatively easily. Like, considering, you know, when you have Joe Rogan stroking you off every single week or every time that you're fighting, saying you're the best woman to ever do it, you have crazy knockout power, nobody could stand up to you, you start drinking your own juice. And I think that's what ended up happening with Amanda Nunes, which is why she ended up overlooking Juliana Pena and losing that fight. But we saw her come back about eight months later, seven months later, and showcasing uh, way more determination, way more motivation. And she went out there and absolutely battered Juliana Pena over 25 minutes. That allowed her to reclaim her title. And now she was actually scheduled to fight Juliana Pena again. But Pena pulls out to an injury and in steps Irene Aldana, who is a very stiff competitor as well. But Nuna is training out of her own camp there in Florida now. After spending the majority of her career at American Top Team, it seems like she is trying to wind down her career at 35 years old. But I still think she has a couple dominant performances left on her record. Or at least left to be had. Her opponent this weekend is Mexican Arena Aldana, who's riding a two-fight winning streak. In both fights, she managed to knock her opponents out. The first of which to Yana Santos, so she landed a beautiful punch from uh, the top and then eventually landed some ground and pound to get her out of there. And then the second fight was the Macy Kiazon fight, which was 1-1 going into that third round. And it seemed like it was a round that was going to be in Macy Kiazon's favor until Irene Aldana pulled off something we've never seen before. 
and that was an upkick to the liver that immediately crumbled Macy Casson and got Irene Aldana's hand raised. Aldana, at her best, utilizes her boxing and combinations from outside where she's able to batter her opponents, either knock them out or win a decision just off of volume. Her defensive grappling is really, it seems, where she needs to make her improvements, though, as that's where past opponents have been able to beat her, most, or most recently, Holly Holm back in October of 2020. She is kind of active off of her back, but feeling, or, you know, dealing with a higher level of the UFC bantamweight division, it's going to be hard for her to fight off her back, just as we saw in her fight against Macy Casson, where she seemed to have trouble in that fight fighting defensively in the grappling realm. But in the striking realm, she is no chump, and I think she might even have a slight technical striking advantage over Nunes this weekend. But the question is if she can keep it in that realm long enough to exploit that advantage that I believe that she has by a smidge. It's not a whole lot, but if she is to win this fight, it will likely have to come in the striking realm. Last time I checked, the over two and a half is currently sitting around even money. And I think that the way that Nunes is going to look to attack this fight will be with takedowns. And I think that we're going to see a lot of stalling here throughout the fight and a lot of back and forth, which will cause this fight to go over that 12 and a half minute mark, probably even go into the fourth or fifth round. I do like the Nunes side here because she is a little bit more well-equipped for this type of matchup. She has the grappling advantage. She can get the takedowns with relative ease and she can do great work from on top. And I think that Irene Aldana, she's good enough off of her back to stay safe in terms of not getting finished but i think that she's going to struggle in terms of working back to her feet or finding a submission off her back to catch something with uh to catch nunez in so I, i'm still going to go with the champion here um you know minus 325 sure the money line might be a tad wide but i feel like it's accurate i think she has all the advantages here the only way aldana wins this fight in my opinion is if she ends up finding a knockout on the feet but i think that nunez is going to cross the pocket over and over again get this fight to the ground and then just do work from on top seeing this fight go over that two and a half round mark and i might even ladder it over two and a half over three and a half over four and a half fight goes to decision give me nunez by decision and still and there you guys go breakdowns on all 11 fights on the card appreciate all the love and support as always remember pfl breakdowns are going to be on the patreon link in the description below and also if you want to do your own research for all of the pfl or upcoming regional events that we have throughout june you can find all of that good stuff on the mma fight archive to make all your studying oh so easy so you have a little bit of extra time to go spend with your loved ones and just do whatever the hell you like instead of just spending all endless hours of the day looking from footage from all corners of the world i got you covered I'm the best in the world at doing this thing, which is why professionals all over the space rely on your boy to provide them with uh, footage, with links, with all that stuff. I know where to find it all, and I have it all posted for you guys on the MMA Fighter Archive link in the description below. Appreciate every single one of you guys. I'll be back later this week for the Lucky Two-Step formerly the Lockheed Trinity. We're going to be changing it to a two-leg free parlay just so we can get some dubs under our belt. Don't worry. I will add a bonus segment in there to complete the Lockheed Trinity so we can keep that going as well. But the main focus will be the Lockheed Two-Step, which is a free two-leg parlay. And then the three best prop bets, which will drop on Fridays as well. I tried doing Friday, Saturday drops, not working out the way that I thought it would. So we're going to go back to the regular Thursday, Friday drop. All right, appreciate all the love and support as always. Hit that like and subscribe if you haven't already. Good luck on all your action this weekend, and I'll see you guys later on this week. Peace. Last thing.